want to remind you that our children in K through 5 and middle school are now invited to leave for their Sunday school classes. We're glad that you've been with us in worship today, young people, and we hope that you have a great time in, in Sunday school. <clears throat> I got to tell you just real quick, I love where I get to sit on the chancel for the, for the, the choir. I have the best seat in the house. Well, this week we're looking at the, the book of Ezekiel. And as a part of my preparation for this sermon on Ezekiel 37, this famous passage which you heard read a few moments ago, which was just sung for you again, I decided to read through all of the book. And I felt like I was looking at the headlines on the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Sex scandals, deportation, war, rumor of war, all sorts of mistrust and misdeeds happening among the people of Israel. It felt as though I was just going through the headlines from the last week, from the last month, the last, the last year or so. Some say that Ezekiel, when he did his preaching, did most of it in Babylon, in exile, as a deportee, that he never really preached back in the promised land. He may have gone back once or twice. There was some, usually they allowed folks to go back and visit their homeland but it appears as though Ezekiel did all of his preaching to the people of Israel who've been dragged away, off into captivity, off almost, it feels to them, like the other side of the world. And there he preaches to them. And in one sense or another, they are the dry bones. They are the ones whose lives, oh, they're not physically dead, but they may as well be. They're spiritually worn out. Sociologically, they have no hope. As a culture, they have seen their culture destroyed, the temple burnt to the ground, their loved ones, many of them killed, the others now far, far away in sadness. In fact, in Ezekiel's day, there was even this intellectual and philosophical conversation that went on among the worship leaders and the, and the worshiping community. Can we really worship? If the temple's been destroyed, if we, as a result of our own stupid, foolish behavior, are now stuck in this faraway land, can we even worship God? Does God even want us to worship God? It was a serious conversation, a sincere worry. After all, they've, they've seen the worst of what can happen. Would, would God let them? Would God even want them? Would their worship even matter? If they've been listening to Ezekiel preach for these 36 chapters before we get to this beautiful text, and they're being honest, they know that the result of what they're experiencing is more than anything else, their own refusal to fall in the ways of God. Now, let me be clear about this. They're not being punished. It's not as though somehow God sent down a lightning bolt from heaven. But their actions, their behaviors, the way they've lived has created the collapse of their culture. Maybe it would be good for us to listen carefully to at least one other verse from Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel 16, 49. Now, if anybody has memorized that, I'll buy you lunch today. I honestly will. <laughs> now, we memorize a lot of Bible verses. John 3, 16 is probably the most famous one for Christians. For God so loved the world. It's really the headline verse of the church, isn't it? For God so loved Psalm 23, heard so often at funerals, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Ezekiel 16, 49 doesn't exactly spring to memory, but listen to it. What was the guilt of our sister Sodom? Do you remember Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? What was the guilt? In other words, what brought on the destruction? What brought on the, the problems that Sodom experienced? They were prosperous 
and filled with ease and plenty of food, and yet they failed to care for the poor and the needy. Do you hear why Sodom's culture fell apart, literally and, and, and metaphorically? They had more than enough. Prosperous ease is the phrase in Hebrew. More than enough, and yet they failed to provide for those who did not. And their culture, their world, collapsed. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to take away from this verse. First of all, to see that indeed, when culture falls apart, it's usually because we fail to care for each other. We fail to see our neighbor as ourself, to be sure that everyone has a, a safe place to live and enough food to eat and, and care for their, their spiritual and physical bodies. And also notice that there's not a single word in there about same-sex behavior. Too often we, we contribute, we attribute the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah to that. And it's not, it's not true. It's not in the Bible. It's not there in, in the Old Testament. It's not a part of Ezekiel's understanding at all. This church has been on the forefront of welcoming LGBTQ folks. And we will continue to be in the forefront of doing so, of welcoming all of God's children into this space, understanding that all are created in the eyes of God and all are beautiful in God's eyes. That's not there in Ezekiel. What is there is the failure of their culture to care for each other. Now, I, I, I suppose we could, we could say that our, our, our culture, our, our, our country, isn't nearly as bad as they, things were back in Ezekiel's day. But we understand, don't we? We kind of get it. Are, are you like me? Do you, do you turn on the news at the end of the day? I come home tired, wanting to just relax, put my feet up and, and just in, and enjoy the evening. Turn on the news, perhaps see what's going on in the world. And, and to do this, I almost cringe. I almost turn it on and just kind of stand back and wait. It's, it feels like sometimes the news just reach out, reaches out from the screen and slaps you in the face. Another scandal, another lie, another fight, another this or that or something else. It feels so frightening at times. Like the dry bones of our democracy are fading right in front of us. And yet, and yet, despite all that stuff going on in Washington and elsewhere, I need to recognize, and maybe you do, that I need this word for me personally. This word is a challenge to me and my life and the way I'm living even now in this moment. Am I being the pastor I'm called to be? The husband, the father, friend, the neighbor? When I look at the, at the, at the bones of my spiritual life, as it were, what, what do I see? What, what if we do that for all of us this morning? What if all of us in some way, like, like Ezekiel, could, could hover around the bones of our spiritual lives? What would we see? Pink flesh, sinew, deep breath, liveliness, joy, happiness, grace, mercy, forgiveness taking hold of us? Or would we see instead... Something like what Ezekiel saw. Dry, brittle, dead. It's a hard question. A difficult one to face. But, but in light of all those questions, the next question quite clearly is this. Are you ready for resurrection? And I'm not talking about after you die. I'm talking about right now. 
Most of the time in the Bible, when we encounter a resurrection story, which is what Ezekiel 37 is, what we're being shown is not something that happens to us after we die, but a promise that even now God is wanting to bring heaven to us. When we die, God will take care of us. That's a done deal. It's been sealed forever. This text and many of the texts of the New Testament instead invite us to see how we're living now and, that, and to see the fact that God wants heaven to come to us in this place, in this moment. We prayed about it in the Lord's Prayer. We pray that prayer every week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. You prayed that this morning. That's what Ezekiel is saying to his congregation, to these dried up bones, to these people of Israel who no longer have a life or a home or faith even. Are you ready for resurrection? Are you ready for God even now in this moment to do something new and real in your life? Are you ready perhaps even for the restoration of your very soul? I wonder. Can we be honest about this? Some, sometimes I wonder if we'd, if we'd just rather not. I sometimes wonder if the biggest mistake we face in life is not some gigantic sin, some front page news that gets us on the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, but rather a shrug, a sigh, a bit of indifference, of, of not caring. I wonder if it's easier just to kind of cocoon and pull back into our shell like some kind of turtle and pretend as though there's nothing to worry about beyond us. There was a man who died and he found himself in, in a room, an office room. There was a clerk right in front of him in a desk Behind her, there was a door labeled heaven, and the other side of her, there was a door labeled hell. The woman saw the man and said, welcome, glad you're here. Um, we're very busy today. Can you just pick the door you want to go through? The man said, I, I don't understand. She said, no, we're very, very busy, backed up. Uh, we had more than we were expecting. Just you decide. You want to go to heaven or you want to go, go to hell? And the man's kind of indignant. He says, you don't understand. I did all I could in my life to prove that I'm des I deserve this and I'm worthy of this. I want to be judged. I demand to be judged. Somebody come judge me, please. He's kind of ticked off. And she says, no, really, we're very busy. Choose one. He lets out a big sigh. And he goes to the door labeled hell. I, I don't like that story because it feels too close, too personal. Sometimes I wonder if, if I choose the lazier choice, the easier choice, the place where I won't have to be expected to live with grace and love and mercy and joy as a part of who I am. Instead of choosing that heavenly way of being, instead I choose the easy way, the simple way, the lazier way, the indifferent way. Maybe not caring is the biggest concern we have. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been stuck in that place where there's just, there's just too much going on, too many fights, too many arguments, too many projects, too many things to buy, too many deals to be made, too many files to file and all of that, and you just finally end up saying, I just don't care. I, I just don't care. I'm wondering too if if that isn't the biggest problem we face in the church in the United States today, I wonder if not caring enough for each other and for our neighbors is the issue we need to face. Someone has said that the reason church fights can be so nasty and mean and rude is because there's so little at stake. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny. And it's kind of true. There was a church in, in West Virginia, in the hills of West Virginia, a little mountain church, a little mountain Bible church, the kind that has an altar call at the end. Remember those kind of churches? Maybe some of you attended those. I did growing up where there would be an altar call at the very end. The pastor would come out and, and would give a, an invitation, would say, anyone who'd like to come forward now to give your heart to Jesus, please do so. If you'd like to recommit your life uh, to God, please come and do so as we sing this hymn. And they'd sing something like, Just As I Am. Uh, without one plea, beautiful old gospel hymn from back in the day. And, and then people may or may not come forward and the service would end. Well, this one particular church, they were doing that, singing just as I am, when a woman, a young woman, a divorced woman, mother of two, came from the back pew, walked right down the center aisle, met the pastor at the front. He reached out to shake her hand and he said, have you come to recommit your life? You see, everybody in the church, they knew about her. She was a member, and they talked about her. In fact, just before she got to the pastor, this mean-spirited old lady said, well, it's about time she turned her life around. And what she said to her pastor was, no, I'm not coming to recommit anything. I've come to unjoin the church. He said, what? She said, I've come to unjoin. I no longer want to be a member here because no one cares. No one cares about me. No one in this church frankly cares about each other, nor do they care about God. I want to leave. Preacher Rob Bell wonders how many people, if you were to ask them why they've left the church, would say, well, it's just so small. It's just so small. And he doesn't mean attendance or membership. He says, it's just so meaningless. I believe the biggest issue facing our spiritual lives today is not some terrible sin, some gigantic moral failure. It's this indifference, this shrug, this danger of just not caring, of becoming small. Ezekiel's congregation is asking the same kind of questions. Who are we? Do we matter? Do we matter to God? Does God even know that we're alive? Does God even care? Why should we care? So what Ezekiel does is he reframes their hopelessness into hope. He declares that the Spirit of God is going to roam about them. The Spirit of God is also translated as the breath of God or the wind of God. It appears in, in the text several times. It's all, the, all those words are the same word in Hebrew, ruach. It's the very ruach of God, the, the, hand, the wind, the, the breath, the Spirit of God of heaven itself is going to blow among the people and create new life. There's a text printed in your bulletin right before the sermon, right after the sermon title that is the conclusion of what we heard earlier. It's, this is a resurrection story. This is a, a story of hope. And the Ruach comes and hovers over the formless void of your life and mine, inviting us to experience something now. Did you know that for the first 1,000 years of church history, that the resurrection of Jesus was interpreted primarily and almost exclusively as the conquering of death by love? It's still true today. In Jesus, what God wants to do is take hold of your life even now. Even now, no matter where you've been or where you might be going or what you've experienced, what you haven't experienced, even now, the very ruach, wind of heaven, spirit of God, breath of God, the breath, the breath that's in your lungs is a sign that God wants to take hold of you in this moment and send your life toward hope, joy, grace, 
and peace. We see this in the Gospel of John. John shapes his story of Jesus in the same way that, he, that Ezekiel tells his story. In the Gospel of John, John presents Jesus' story as a way of saying, here's the new life that Jesus came to give you. In John chapter 2, we, John tells us that there was the first of Jesus' signs, the first of his miracles. Does anybody remember what the miracle was, the first miracle in John chapter 2? There was a whole lot of water, and he changed it into wine. I knew you'd get it. He changed it into wine. How does the story go? Do you remember the story? Jesus and his disciples and his mother, Mary, are there at this big wedding party, this big celebration. Hundreds of folks there, and Mary learns that they've run out of, they've run out of wine. This is a major faux pas for uh, people in Jesus' day to not have enough wine to serve the guests. Mary comes up to Jesus, good Jewish mother that she is, and she says, um, son, you ought to do something. And Jesus says, uh, mom, leave me alone. Could you please, geez, geez, just leave me alone. That's kind of a loose interpretation of the text, but you get the idea. <laughs> and then Jesus, good boy that he is, he goes over, and there are six jars of water, 30 gallons in each of the jars, and he changes it into wine. That's 180 gallons of wine. That's a serious party. And the next thing you know, people are drinking the wine. And they're saying, oh my goodness, this is the end of the party. Usually people serve the, the good stuff first and they bring out the cheap stuff. They brought out the 99 rated uh, uh, Sonoma County Cabernet Sauvignon. This is unbelievable. This is amazing. Who does this? It's like, it's like, it's like they thought God was going to come to the party. And Jesus says, uh, yeah, precisely. That's what's happening. Do you see what's happening in that story? Jesus doesn't do this in front of anybody. He doesn't make a big deal about it. There's nothing going on in terms of, of, oh, now everybody watch what happens here. It's done in quiet and in private and in silence. It's the new Jerusalem. That's what this entire sermon series has been about. It's about God's desire to come into our lives and bring this marvelous gift so that we can be a part of the party of life and celebrate the presence and the goodness of each other. And then John goes on. And there are six more signs in his story, in the way he tells the story of Jesus. Six plus one, the one in, in chapter two, how many is that? That is seven. Seven signs. Seven's a big number in the Bible. What does it remind you of? The seven days of creation. Do you see what John is doing? He's saying what Jesus has come to do is to reinvigorate your life your soul, your world. On the, and then there's an eighth sign. It's the resurrection. And where is Jesus resurrected? He's in a garden. Do you see what's happened in John's preaching, in John's understanding of the story? We've gone back to the Garden of Eden. We've gone back to the day when God and God's children walked together in the garden, when all of God's children had enough food to eat, when all of God's children were safe. G John is saying to us, Jesus is proclaiming to us, this is the life you've been invited to live. This is the world that you're called to create and co-create with me. That is God in the here and now with the promise that our dried up old bones are not yet dead. That the Spirit of God is here and ready and more than willing to transform us even now. The question one old preacher asked is not, is the church dying? Is the church declining? That's not the question. The question is, what are we giving our lives to? What is the church giving its life for? For grace, for hope, for life? Can these bones live? 
Can they? 